Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is April 24, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's a privilege to be joined in dialogue by members of the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To speak, I would ask participants to use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and I will call you in order using your first name. As always, I have suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted in the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So today we begin the first of three sessions on the Statesman, which is the sequel to The Sophist that we finished reading three weeks ago. And in turn, The Sophist was the sequel to The Theotetus, which ended our first season. All three dialogues treat the subject of knowledge, but from different perspectives. The Theotetus explores knowledge from the viewpoint of the common person, and asks whether any one of us is, quote, the measure of all things, unquote, in terms of absolute knowledge of both that which is and that which is not. The sophist makes the distinction between that which is and that which is not, as it looks at knowledge from the perspective of the teacher who is paid for its distribution. In the sophist, the weaving together of five forms is held to be critical to knowledge in its spoken transmission. The forms of that which is, change, rest, the same, and the different. We see the latter two forms in particular at the beginning of the statesman, which examines knowledge from the standpoint of the leader. Here, knowledge is classified as either practical or theoretical, and the theoretical is further divided into the directive and judgmental categories that the leader employs in the exercise of power. Near 279C, where we end today's reading, the point is made that children learn the meaning of letters, which are the symbols we use to communicate knowledge, in a process of creating models or examples in stages, beginning with what they know, and then applying the same principles to different combinations of what they don't know. This will lead to a powerful assertion by the visitor from Elia at 284A, which we'll discuss in two weeks, about the statesman's job, which is to locate the mean of the extremes. I thought we could start our own dialogue today by listening to a statesman speak. The excerpt from the speech that I will play is about six minutes long, and the words were spoken in 1966 by a U.S. senator to an audience of students in racially segregated South Africa. The speech is often referred to as a ripple of hope, and the senator was Robert Kennedy, who was assassinated two years later as he sought the presidency. In this excerpt, Kennedy touched on a number of themes in today's reading from the statesman. I find the ripple of hope speech particularly moving, especially so in contrast to the poison of negativity and animosity in the speeches of many of today's statesmen. Half a century ago, Kennedy spoke about the power of the immaterial, of imagination, hope and justice, which are of no consequence to the physical, but of utmost consequence to the soul. He provided a context of time to understand the evolution of hope and justice, saying that we cannot cling to the present that is already dying, and appealing to the human spirit to define the future by the ideal and virtue. In our next episode, I think we will find this temporal context is particularly important for the statesman to identify the mean of extremes. In today's reading, it may help us to understand the visitor from Elio's digression in time to explain the creation of the universe and the origin of the ruler's knowledge separate from all others. 
We will see in the Statesman Plato's continuing emphasis on the soul. And in Kennedy's speech, we can appreciate as souls ourselves, the words conjured with passion and eloquence by the soul of a statesman to elevate the oppressed souls of the students in his audience. He spoke not only for the theory of justice and hope, but also for the necessity of their practical application, and thus emphasized the two classes of knowledge that the visitor describes in today's reading. And Kennedy did this with humility, acknowledging to a foreign audience the errors and difficulties in his own country, while he evoked philosophy in mentioning Machiavelli, Aristotle, Archimedes, and Aeschylus. So I asked, what statesman today would dare to make such a speech to inspire the soul? Was Kennedy showing promise of being the type of philosopher-ruler that Socrates held as an ideal in the Republic? For me, the ripple of hope is among the greatest of statesmanlike speeches of the 20th century, and I'd like to share it with you now so that we can connect its themes to Plato's statesman. If we would lead outside our own borders, if we would help those who need our assistance, if we would meet our responsibilities to mankind, we must first, all of us, demolish the borders which history has erected between men within our own nations, barriers of race and religion, social class and ignorance. Our answer is the world's hope. It is to rely on youth. The cruelties and the obstacles of this swiftly changing planet will not yield to obsolete dogmas and outworn slogans. It cannot be moved by those who cling to a present which is already dying, who prefer the illusion of security to the excitement and danger which comes with even the most peaceful progress. This world demands the qualities of youth, not a time of life, but a state of mind a temper of the will, a quality of the imagination, a predominance of courage over timidity, of the appetite for adventure over the life of ease. A man like the chancellor of this university. a revolutionary world that we all live in. And thus, as I have said in Latin America and in Asia and in Europe and in my own country, the United States, it is the young people who must take the lead. Thus, you and your young compatriots everywhere have had thrust upon you a greater burden of responsibility than any generation that has ever lived. There is, said an Italian philosopher, Nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more uncertain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. Yet this is the measure of the task of your generation, and the road is strewn with many dangers. First is the danger of futility, the belief there is nothing one man or one woman can do against the enormous array of the world's ills, against misery, against ignorance, or injustice and violence. Yet many of the world's great movements of thought and action have flowed from the work of a single man. A young monk began the Protestant Reformation. A young general extended an empire from Macedonia 
to the borders of the earth, and a young woman reclaimed the territory of France. It was a young Italian explorer who discovered the New World, and 32-year-old Thomas Jefferson, who proclaimed that all men are created equal. Give me a place to stand, said Archimedes, and I will move the world. These men move the world, and so can we all. Few will have the greatness to bend history, but each of us can work to change a small portion of the event, and in the total, all of these acts will be written in the history of this generation. Thousands of Peace Corps volunteers are making a difference in the isolated villages in the city slums of dozens of countries. Thousands of unknown men and women in Europe resisted the occupation of the Nazis, and many died, but all added to the ultimate strength and freedom of their countries. It is from numberless, numberless diverse acts of courage such as these that the belief that human history is thus shaped each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. If Athens shall appear great to you, said Pericles, Consider then that her glories were purchased by valiant men and by men who learned their duty. That is the source of all greatness in all societies, and it is the key to progress in our time. The second danger is that of expediency, of those who say that hopes and beliefs must bend before immediate necessities. Of course, if we must act effectively, we must deal with the world as it is. We must get things done. But if there was one thing that President Kennedy stood for that touched the most profound feeling of young people around the world, it was the belief that idealism, high aspirations, and deep convictions are not incompatible with the most practical and efficient of programs, that there is no basic inconsistency between ideals and realistic possibilities. No separation between the deepest desires of heart and of mind and the rational application of human effort to human problems. It is not realistic or hard-headed to solve problems and take an action unguided by ultimate moral aims and values, although we all know some who claim that it is so. In my judgment, it is thoughtless folly for it ignores the realities of human faith and a passion and a belief, forces ultimately more powerful than all of the calculations of our economists or of our generals. Of course, to adhere to standards, to idealism, to vision in the face of immediate dangers takes great courage and takes self-confidence. But we also know that only those who dare to fail greatly can ever achieve greatly. All right. What do people think about that? It's um, you know, in terms of how you have perceived statesmen, and in terms of 
how the statesman is presented in this dialogue that we're reading today. Um, again, you know, I was particularly interested in a number of themes that are presented here. Uh, you know, again, the focus on the immaterial, the, the way that Kennedy did not speak about national borders um, and the those distinctions or differences among people, but more about the similarities between people and and in particular, I found the the emphasis on time was was very fascinating. You know, this uh, you know he went back in time a great distance. You know, to talk about Archimedes and um, you know, and I think that really helps to maybe place the statesman in a particular context. That the statesman is not just somebody who is here to help with you know the time as it is today, but is really here to assess the whole arc of history and to figure out where things today are in relation to that. And I think that's very much a theme that's going to come up in our next session in two weeks when we read in particular that part at 284 um, in terms of the statesman's role that the visitor says in finding the mean of the extremes. Uh, and that's something that you know perhaps is best done with some sort of perspective on time. And so I just wanted to get some reaction from that. And to see if there was any particular things that Kennedy said that that resonated and that perhaps relate to um, how you think about this this dialogue that, or the part of the dialogue that we're reading today. You know, maybe we could start by uh, well, we'll start with Eva actually, and then I was going to maybe focus us on on you know maybe the part from two sixty two C onward. So, Eva, your thought? Yeah, very shortly. It looks like this talk was done just yesterday. So timeless talk that we see like our needs uh, are not that that much of much of a change of, of the young generation or the next generation. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation because I mean I kind of heard the same thing too when I listened to it, and I've listened to it a number of times that it's something that his words could really apply today uh, to today as much as they did back in 1966, a half a century ago. Um, and so maybe, you know, the, the issues or the challenges that we experience now are really not that much different in, in the, the general category um, than they were back in time, you know, it, and so it's, you know, different circumstances, of course, always, but, um, but you know maybe the the category of of issues that we face and 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 you know strengths that we have and challenges that we face uh, is really similar through time. Maybe it's just like uh, one good news about that. If we are really trying to find a good and hopeful news, is that there are more list uh, the list of the people who are being represented at this time. Uh, is more higher, but unfortunately, that brings the list of the people who have to sacrifice uh, their life or presence is a higher number too. But at least that shows that uh, we're at least going somewhere. We're talking. We're not only talking about human rights now in uh, like a closed-ended issue, like there are more people who believe like human rights needs to be addressed and uh, named in specific needs. At least that's we are working on. Mm -hmm. 
hopefully. I, I think so. And, and, you know, certainly use the word human, which I, I think is, you know, a key to understanding this classification that we put ourselves into, you know, we are all human, uh, even though we have different backgrounds and we live in different countries, you know, lines are drawn on map on maps, uh, you know, and those lines change on the maps constantly over time. But, you know, regardless of what lines in the maps we happen to live within, um, and regardless of what race we call ourselves part of, uh, you know, we are at the end all human. And I think that point is made very powerfully by uh, the visitor at 262C when he says, um, it's as if someone tried to divide the human race into two and made the cut in the way that most people here carve things up, taking the Greek race away as one, separate from all the rest, and to all the other races together, which are unlimited in number, which don't mix with one another and don't share the same language, calling this collection by the single appellation or name barbarian. And that was a really interesting, you know, that's a very forward view, I think, maybe when we think back in time, you know, that um, that this this view was that, you know, regardless of whether you're Greek or not, uh, you're all part of the, the, the same family, the, the human family. And I think that was a very powerful view expressed 2,400 years ago. And I heard that coming very clearly through in, in Kennedy's speech. Um, Darren, your thoughts? Morning, everyone. Morning. Okay, everyone can hear me. Good. Um, so, well, I wanted to re uh, respond to James's uh, um, question about this speech or um, asking for comments about the speech, but I just want to quickly say something about what uh, James just said. So I think there is often a surprising cosmopolitanism in Plato. Um, like I, it doesn't seem like he's, he necessarily sees like, um, like, Greek culture or Greeks as necessarily like above other groups or ethnicities, which is surprising for his time. I mean, you see just glimpses of this. And I, I think in the Euthyphro, like he, he, like he, he casts suspicion on whether the Greek gods really are the real gods. Cause I mean, like other people worship other gods. Um, you see this, I think in, in uh, other dialogues, like, I don't think he, like in the Cratylus on language, I don't think he like, privileges greek language as somehow like better or closer to the truth or whatever so i mean there's often like there's these glimpses where it's often like he doesn't really emphasize plato doesn't seem to emphasize it maybe it's dangerous for him too or maybe uh, to do it with his audiences but um yeah i, I just find that like there's just glimpses that, like uh, that are surprising to me like there's there's a there's a kind of universalism in him um like he i think his his concern is with all human beings, not not just with like Greeks. And uh, yeah, and we saw this today too. So um, in the way he made divisions and yeah, that was really interesting statements. Um, so just regarding the uh, speech um, that James asked us to uh, react to. Um, so I have to admit, I actually don't know what <laughs> Plato thinks of the statement so far. I only did the reading, assigned reading for today and uh, there I don't know if there was that much directly about the statesman. There was like that um, long stretch uh, where they tried to make the divisions, which was kind of weird because they, they started talking about like animals on land, aquatic animals versus land animals. Again, I was like, what does this have to do with statesmanship? Um, so 
so I, I suspect it's coming, right? Because we've only read like maybe a, like a third to a half of the dialogue so far. Um, but uh, but there 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 were sort of um, connections I I heard though um, with the reading today from the speech. Um, and thanks for sharing that with us, James. It was a really great speech. I've never heard it before. Um, so I guess one of the things, I, so there's two, two things I would say that jumped out. Um, so one is that um, Plato has so far made a distinction that um, the uh, statesman rules over his people or, or a city or whatever, or state um, voluntarily. Or or, the, or or has uh, or the subjects um, uh, follow voluntarily. Whereas a tyrant, um, that, well, I don't know if you can call. Like, I guess you can call. I guess you can say as subjects um, don't don't follow voluntarily. And um, this voluntariness is um, interesting. I don't I don't know what's going to come um, come of this in the rest of the dialogue, but it's interesting um, because. Um, here we wait that was robert kennedy was it or yeah bobby kennedy yeah. Oh, robert, okay sorry <laughs> just make you check out the person right <laughs> um and um so here he's like there's something about voluntariness that's closely linked to like speech and rhetoric and trying to get people on board something like we're not forcing people to like march and lockstep to some like ideal we're trying to convince people. We're trying to inspire people. We're trying to elevate people to get to do something. And so there's there's just something very, um, of course. We, I mean, we know like rhetoric can go wrong, like with um, <laughs> with um, and and I don't know. Maybe maybe they're like sophists or tyrants also make use of that, but. But uh, so yeah, there, 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 but there is a connection that uh, like I'll, I'll have to think about more, like because um, or maybe more is coming up in a dialogue, and uh, so another thing that Plato says about um, the statesman or about or at least the uh, human earthly statesman as opposed to the divine statesman is that uh, because our world is sort of degenerating in a way or imperfect because the gods let go of the world. I mean, I guess, I guess we'll talk more about the myths later. Um, we have to rely on ourselves. We have to take care of things for ourselves. And so I, this is one thing I thought was interesting, at least so far, is that, you know, he, um, in the myth, Plato says that, um, or the stranger says that we have an indispensable requirement for teaching and education which wasn't needed before when everything was provided us. So we sort of have to, and I mean, I see like Bobby Kennedy doing this kind of thing, right. Where he's trying to, in a way, like educating us, like our spirit <laughs> to do certain things. Um, and you know, the, the justice that we want and the, the peace that we want, isn't just going to like come, isn't just going to fall from the sky. Like, almost literally <laughs> in the myth, right? It comes from this guy because the, the divine herdsman will help us along. But here he's, um, here we have to do things for ourselves. And okay, so I'll just quickly make a second point uh, and let other people speak. So the second thing was um, that, that I got from the speech was that um, this idea about inspiration, idealism is interesting. And it ties in with, um, I think what James like um, suggested about the time issue because um, 
in the again i'm not sure what's going to come of this in the rest of the dialogue but there already we see a distinction between the divine herdsman and the sort of earthly one and um plato says well actually we were trying to find the divine herdsman we should actually try to figure out what the earthly states or uh earthly statesman does um and but but we but he's but still he's giving us a glimpse of what a sort of divine herdsman would do and is like and um so i don't know that's like uh, so it, this leads to the question of like what the myth is here there for and what it's about and uh, at least partly seems to be about like elevating our vision expanding our vision um so that sort of relates to maybe the idealism that i mean is is very clear in the speech right so all right i'm done thank you thank you and, and you know certainly you touched on some very key points that you use the word you know at the beginning of what you were saying the word universalism and i think we'll maybe see that in the discussion that's that will start in two weeks on the second part of um of the dialogue uh with this focus on weaving right so we had discussion in the sophist about this process of weaving and it gets very more uh, detailed in the statesman you know the the how the universe came to be you know the myth that you refer to darren uh, that, you know, is talked about towards the end of today's reading, which is about the creation of the universe. So why did they go into this long story about the creation of the universe? And actually they make fun of themselves in the second part of the reading for going at that length about the origin of the universe. So we're talking about statesmen. We want to know about the statesmen. Why are we talking about the origin of the universe in this so-called myth? Uh, but it was really done in this dialogue to, to show how the knowledge of the statesman arises and how that knowledge would arise separate and apart from everybody every other different type of knowledge and to do that you have to go back in time is what the the visitor says and so that's was a key point there but you know i think the you know the idea of universalism um will find uh, towards the end of the dialogue that that the visitor starts talking about the soul as as happens often in in plato's dialogues the soul is kind of the concluding aspect of the dialogue and you know i think this this process of weaving that we'll focus on in our next discussion is really talking about how the soul is woven into the fabric of the universe and the soul is everywhere i think that's very platonic in terms of its uh, of its concept and perhaps very uh, very powerful and empowering thought uh, for us, a thought that gives us agency. And certainly there are sections towards the end of today's reading that talk about agency, you know, how that comes about. You know, when the when the universe was created, you know, originally it was the, the God that was guiding it, but then the God let go. And then the universe that we're part of, we have agency. The God doesn't have agency, we do. And I think that's a very empowering thought. So, um so some very interesting ideas there and, and thank you for that and you know basically you know I, as i said in my introductory remarks you know this was in my view it was kennedy not the physical body of kennedy speaking but the soul of kennedy speaking and kennedy is using words uh his soul is using words to appeal to us listening to him now a half a century later but also to the souls of the uh students in his audience so this is this is the the method by which the soul has to operate is speech, you know, and putting those words together and, and other souls understand that by those patterns, you know, the, the meaning that we make of the patterns in speech. So I think it's a very, uh, very key idea and, and one that I really hope to illustrate with that speech.
So thank you. We'll, we'll go to JK. Yeah, I thought that the uh, distinction that Plato makes in this statesman between the tyrant and the voluntary statesman, the one who appeals to the voluntary um, <clears throat> assent of, of the people he, um, he um, leads, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to a tyrant, right, who, who, is, uh, who bases his, his uh, rulership or reign on, um, on dictating to other people without their voluntary assent. That kind of uh, that that uh, you know appears to me a kind of um, an ideal, kind of idealism, a democratic idealism actually, right? That uh, I think I heard in the, in Kennedy's speech, right? That um, this kind of democratic idealism and hope uh, uh, crosses the, the borders and crosses the divisions that we, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, tend to make. Um, Based on race or based on all kinds of various distinction that divide people, right? And that kind of uh, idealism is um, is something that um, he believes that we, it's worth striving for, you know, in which uh, we see ourselves in the uh, on this world in the in this world as uh, you know being in the same in the same pretty much in the same boat. We're on the same boat, and we we can share this kind of uh, you know. Um, Kind of um, hope, you know, for uh, a democratic idealism where we can um, we can voluntarily, um, you know, rely on all free choice to to uh, uh, you know to um, you know to guide us, you know, um, depending on and of course led by a a um, a, uh, a true statement, not not a tyrant, which is. At that time, I'm sure in Plato's time was uh, was uh, uh, was evident among some of his leaders, and particularly now we see um, tyrants all over the uh, all over the uh, world, um, and we see them in our own <laughs> country. I think you know because there is this kind of um, opposite spirit towards um, you know tyranny. Uh, trending in the world. Let's consider the uh, look at the election in France between these two um, <clears throat> candidates. Uh, I don't know if uh, anybody check who won the, the election in France, Le Pen or Macron. But there's a there's an instance where you have a you know um, you know a, um, a competition between tyranny and um, True statesmanship, or at least you know, someone closer to true statesmanship. Yeah. So yeah, I, it's um, so you know Play, Plato uh, continues to impress me as someone who uh, doesn't sound like uh, you know what he discussed in the Republic, which uh, you know even though uh, rulership under philosophers. Sounds it, it could be interpreted as a kind of a a um, dictatorship or a tyranny, but um, I, I think he really was a master at um, seeing seeing through the um, the veil and and understanding that the that there is this kind of um, this kind of um, you know um, possibility of of a true true statesmanship and the 
and the belief in the um, voluntary free choice people. Yeah, interesting. You you said a number of, of um, used a number of interesting words, including the word sharing, uh, which I think was really kind of key there. You know that, uh, and, and certainly something that comes through in Kennedy's speech: this idea that we all share a responsibility. Um, and you know, both you and Darren mentioned you know the the tyranny, which is kind of the opposite of what we uh, of what we maybe face. Or, or what the philosopher would would advocate for, um, but and, and it really did make me think. You know, it, it certainly as you as you mentioned, J.K., that you know there are a number of tyrants on our planet today, as there have always been, and you know perhaps an increasing number. The, the election result is not in yet, by the way. Um, but uh, you know, what is it that leads to this tyranny? And and it really did make me think of Plato's Republic. You know, because he went through, I think it was four different types of political models. And, you know, certainly the tyrant was featured, but also the democratic person was featured as well. And uh, he made the point, or Socrates made the point in the Republic that uh, tyranny arises from an excess of liberty. Um, and, you know, you, when you use the word sharing, it made me think that, well, is an excess of liberty really when we, when we claim to be free but our claim is not, we don't share that claim with others so that others aren't allowed to share in that freedom, you know, so that I might claim a particular range of freedom, which impedes on your freedom. And so that sharing isn't present. And so maybe that, that lack of sharing is, is something that causes the decline of democracy, as Socrates was saying in the Republic, and leads to tyranny. And maybe that's what we're maybe experiencing in the world today. And certainly we see this terrible, terrible war uh, in Ukraine and, and a sign that, uh, uh, you know, that, that tyranny exists among us today. Um, and I just wanted to call out, you know, the, you know, also in the, the sense of sharing and, and also Darren, you know, I think mentioned this too, you know, the, the idea of, you know, kind of like the voluntary spirit in us, you know, the, the, the spirit being one of the three parts of the soul, um, you know, the, it it two fifty nine c the visitor makes the point that the uh, the power of, of any king to maintain his rule has little to do with the use of his hands or his body in general in comparison with the understanding and force of his mind um, and so you know the tyrant doesn't care about the force of his mind because the tyrant just forces people to do things regardless. But, you know, clearly in Kennedy's case, in that speech, you know, he was using the force of his mind, not to compel people, but to inspire their spirit, to, to trigger that part of the, of, the, uh, of the soul, the spirit part, uh, to engage in this kind of uh, act of sharing. And to me, that was a real sign of statesmanship, which we'll, we'll see the, the concept of the statesman develop you know, further in this dialogue, uh, you know, Darren, I think you're, you're right that we didn't really, we don't see a lot of the definition of a statesman in this part that we're reading today, but it's really setting us up uh, to understand the, the nature of statesmanship uh, that we'll see in two weeks time. So this is really the foundation of it, I think. You see in, uh, do you see in uh, Plato the, um, the difference between uh, coercion and persuasion? Yeah, I, I do. I do very much. You know, I think it's. Uh, um, I think a lot of it uh, is based on the idea of division. You know, and so in the Sophist, we saw the method of collection and division, where everything 
needs to be divided into two to be able to trace it back to the origin. Um, and, you know, I, I, we, we talked about it when we talked about the sophist, and it comes up again in this dialogue. But uh, the difference in this dialogue is it, it says that it's difficult to divide some things in two. Sometimes we need to divide things in three. Um, and that's the that's the challenge. And I think that's where the idea of you know voluntary sharing uh, comes about in in the way we set up our our constitutions. You know, the, the way that we engage with each other is this this need not to just simply divide into two poles, you know, and there we become polarized. It, but it, to understand that there's a third division. And you know, in that sense, I wanted to raise very important part, I, th I think, which is, which can be overlooked, uh, I think. And that's right at the beginning of the dialogue. Right at the beginning of the dialogue, um, at 257, uh, oh, right at 257A, um, Theodorus, who is present at the beginning of the sophist as well as the statesman, which is really kind of an interesting, you know, dramatic device. Why is Theodorus there, right? And he, he really has no, he says just a few words in each of the two dialogues. Why does Plato put Theodorus there? Well, Theodorus of Cyrene supposedly was the geometer and mathematician who taught Plato geometry. Uh, but there's a very interesting part here where, where Plato catches Theodorus out, or Socrates, older Socrates, but you know through older Socrates, Plato catches Theodorus out. At the beginning, uh, so older Socrates says, says, I'm really much indebted to you, Theodorus, for introducing me to Theotetus and also to our visitor. And then Theodorus responds, and perhaps, Socrates, your debt will be three times as great when they complete both the statesman and the philosopher for you. Socrates calls him out. He says, well, yes and no. Shall we say, my dear Theodorus, that we've heard the best arithmetician and geometer putting it like that? Theodorus says, how do you mean, Socrates? Socrates says, because you assume that each of the three were to be assigned equal worth, when in fact they differ in value by more than can be expressed in terms of mathematical proportion. So, you know, he's right there. You know, the, the, the teacher, the, the person who supposedly taught Plato geometry is being called out for a false division. You know, so, so something doesn't divide equally. I think what, what Socrates, older Socrates there is calling, uh, is, is talking about is an incommensurable division. And that really goes into the heart of what he talks about, uh, or what the visitor talks about at 266A to 266D, um, when they start talking about the diagonal. Um, and so when you try to divide things into, like when you try to divide a square in two, you would create a diagonal line, you know, cutting from opposite vertices. And that would divide the square into two, but the problem with the diagonal, uh, you know, using the Pythagorean theorem is that the diagonal is incommensurable. So if you have a square of edge length one, the Pythagorean theorem, which we know that there's no debate about it, the Pythagorean theorem says that the diagonal is the square root of two, which is incommensurable. The square root of two has, it cannot be expressed as a fraction. And yet, the, each side can be expressed as a fraction in relation to each other, right? So the, the sides are, are commensurable, but the diagonal is incommensurable. And so I think there's a very important mathematical and geometric point here that is being made with respect to the diagonal uh, in 266A to 266D, that you cannot necessarily always divide things equally into two. 
and this maybe this is what statesmen now are trying to do. They're now trying to say it is this way or it is that way. There is nothing in between, right? So there's this false division that we create into two, right? So um, maybe you can't divide everything into two. And, and I think that point is very made, made very powerfully uh, 266A to 266D when they talk about the diagonal and the diagonal of the diagonal. Um, and then also, uh, you know, in the, in the part that I was talking about from 262C to 263E, um, there's words here that uh, I would imagine the division would have done better more by real classes and more into two if one cut number by means of even and odd uh, and the human race in its turn by means of male and female. Um, and even and odd and male and female are distinct divisions. There is no incommensurability about that. They are distinct. Um, and there, I think, is, again, another mathematical clue that Plato is bringing to us. So, so maybe I'll raise here the question of why does Plato keep bringing in these mathematical references? Um, and what are we supposed to do with them? How are we supposed to understand them? Is he trying to tell us something with them? And if he's trying to tell us something with them, why doesn't he just come out and say it? But he, he talks about even and odd so many times. I mean, and here it is again in 262, you know, D or E roughly, when he says by means of even and odd. And then, then he goes on in 267A and 287C and 266A to talk about the, the difficulty of dividing things in two after he's told us in, in the sophist that you need to divide things in two. So I, sorry, a long rambling, you know, discussion there but I, I think it is this uh, it is fundamental to understanding what he's what he's trying to present with to us or, or what he's hoping that we will will we'll start thinking about um, so I'll put it out there and and uh, so we have Darren and then Jose G yeah so the question of like why Plato doesn't just tell us what he thinks is <laughs> always an interesting one like um why does he write in dialogues and through other voices and you know why do you why do you like most of the dialogues and in aporia with no conclusion or contradictory conclusions it's it is a mystery and um but um it i think it is tied to like something you know of deep concern to him obviously it has to be um and so and it relates to this um, idea in this uh, passage at the beginning where he says that they differ in value um, comparing um, the sophist and the statesman here by more than can be expressed in terms of mathematical proportion. So what uh, James just read. And um, so I understood this as um, one of Plato's recurring suggestions, actually, that that virtue is something uncanny and weird and has a different logic than means and logic. So when I, when, when he says more than can be expressed in terms of mathematical proportion, I thought, I mean, I, I we, we might uh, be able to like interpret this in various ways, but I thought of something like the way I immediately sort of read it was that it was something infinitely different that, you know, you just, you just suppose that, you know, you, um, he, you, um, I'll owe him or your, your debt will be three times as great because, you know, after you completed the picture of statesman and philosopher, in addition to the sophist, but 
Socrates is like, but you know, actually, <laughs> it's it's more than can be expressed in terms of proportion. So instead of three times, I heard I heard infinite times. <laughs> if we if we manage to figure out who the statesman and the philosopher are, and um, and so I mean, like I I think this is again like, um, this is this comes back to the issue of like why doesn't Plato just tell us <laughs> what he thinks about so many things, and um. I feel like this is one of the things he suggests about virtue all the time, everywhere in so many dialogues, especially the early dialogues. I mean, you know, we're trying to define various virtues, you know, temperance, courage, friendship, you know, it goes on and on. Um, you know, there's dialogues in each one of them. And, um, but we never get a solution. But it's like, so um, I'm, I'm going to, maybe people haven't read this particular dialogue, but I, I really like it because it's a very succinct like the whole dialogue is about like this very thing, this very succinct um, issue, this 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 issue of how this uncanniness of virtue, like he compares. Um, so that 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 dialogue is on the nature of lying and what it is, you know. Um, oh, on I guess yeah, the nature the, on liars and lying and um. But there's this um dialectic about um how. You know, everything seems to operate. Everything can be understood through the, a, a kind of means and end, means and logic, until we get to virtue, which is sort of like its own thing. Like it doesn't necessarily fall. Actually, this comes back to the Bobby Kennedy speech about you know the danger of expediency or realism, and everything's just a calculation. And you know, we we just uh, ideals and moral aims. You know, they, we can just leave those aside. We don't have to think. We sh we should just think realistically and practically about the world. Uh, so actually, that's, that just occurred to me <laughs> that there's that connection there. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, but it, but it's like something, this is like some lesson that Plato tries to, like, he doesn't, it's like he doesn't want to express it out loud or he doesn't want to say what it is because somehow that's like, somehow that makes it, in, in a way that makes it like graspable in a way that is not order it's not supposed to be ordinarily graspable um so i don't want to get too like deep into the weeds about what you know virtue might actually mean but like at least at least i think we know in plato it's it follows a different logic than just like means and calculation or means and rationality that it's just like different and he tries to show that in all these dialogues that oh, it's so mysterious what is this and why would why would we like why would we care about it? Like, why would we act a court? Or like, why would Socrates say, or yeah, why would Socrates say in the Republic that I'd rather be, you know, virtuous and be suffering all these great pains and torture than, you know, not virtuous and be the tyrant who has everything, but is not like, why would, why would anyone want that? Like, it, it's this mysterious thing. So, um, so anyway, that I, I'm just saying, that's what I read. That's what occurred to me when I, when I, when I saw that, like awesome beginning of this dialogue where he says, where he makes this, uh, in, this it's, you know, it's meant to be funny, but it's also really, evocative of a lot of things that Plato says. Indeed. And, and, and he does continue with that theme throughout the dialogue. So he really, he puts it in that place, but then he follows up with it in a number of different places. And I think we're meant to really think about something. So, I mean, you, you really made me think though, Darren, with a number of things that you said, you know, particularly the idea that virtue has a different logic. Um, and we'll actually see that discussion of virtue um, towards the end of the dialogue. And, the, and, and he, he talks about, there's conflict, there's conflict between different types of virtue. Virtues, virtue is not always equal. And I think maybe as you, as you were saying that, that the different logic of virtue, that made me really think of maybe that's the reason why he put that little 
scene with Theodorus in the beginning of the dialogue, you know, that to, to say that every virtue is not of equal worth. Um, and maybe it's different situations that different virtues are called for. And, and so it, it's not virtue isn't a linear relationship. It's maybe a circular relationship. And I think maybe that's the difference in the logic. Um, so I really like your use of the word different logic for, for virtue. And I think, you know, I, I've, I proposed in the last two episodes, a definition of the forms as a means of logic uh, by which the by which the mind in the um, in the unchanging, undifferentiated state of being understands the coming to be of physical things and the order of their coming to be, and so maybe there really is a focus here on logic. Uh, and you know, you, you said a really interesting thing. You know, the the danger of everything being as a calculation, and I wonder if maybe we're getting into that danger especially with artificial intelligence, where we think that everything can be reduced to an algorithm um, and, and algorithms are based on calculations. But, you know, it's, it's interesting how he defines calculation in the Gorgias, uh, the dialogue, the Gorgias, you know, calculation is understanding the differences between the odds and the evens. Um, so I think there's a very important uh, uh, thing there to understand, and maybe we'll have a chance to revisit that particular dialogue. Um, you know, and as you were talking, Darren, about why Plato doesn't tell us what he thinks, it just occurred to me, I just, you know, I'll put this out there, is Plato the ultimate statesman for not telling us what he thinks because he's allowing us to arrive at our own conclusions? You know, so if if the statesman, if the true statesman is somebody who, um, who uh, uses his mind not to compel but to inspire, is Plato inspiring us to arrive at our own conclusions? Uh, you know, and, and I, I think, you know, history is full of, you know, other philosophers who tell us certain things and then they are proven wrong. You know, the, the universe does not revolve around the earth. Um, that was a wrong statement that was made uh, and it's proven wrong. So it was thought, you know, that that was the case for thousands of years and it was proven wrong. So there's danger in maybe telling us something when it could be not true. Um, so anyway, I I will I'll just you know put those thoughts out there you know to amplify what you said, Darren, and maybe to stimulate some more discussion. And we'll go to Jose G. and then to Marmar. Yeah, I wanted to make a, an observation, maybe a question, because you may know this better, James. The uh, I recall reading something about uh, why is it that uh, Plato preferred geometry than numerics, and he um, was, uh, for instance, right? Uh, Try to imagine the square root of two. Pretty difficult to imagine a number that cannot be reduced to a fraction. I mean, you can imagine one third or one fourth. But try to imagine the square root of two. However, try to imagine a, a triangle with one rect angle. That's pretty straightforward. I mean, you see the, the, the square root of two right there. Once the one uh, side has a, a, a unit of one or a unit of measure of one, the other one has a unit of measure of one, the other, there it is in front of you. And that's one reason that. <laughs> I think remember to read that uh, Pythagoras was in trouble 
for a while. Um, he couldn't sleep for a few nights when somebody made a point to him that his uh, hypotenuse doesn't exist because it's incommensurable. Anyway, so that was a, you probably know more about that because I always wonder about the geometry preference for Plato compared to the numerical preference for Pythagoras. Just a, a question and an observation. Appreciate, I appreciate both. Um, and actually, you know, as you, as you said that, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, for me, as somebody who has spent a lot of time studying geometry on my own, uh, geometry is a science of connection, as is logic. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, in, in a geometric object, all parts are connected and all parts relate to each other. You know, in a, in a geometric object, there's edges, which are the limits of the object. There's the uh, vertices where the limits combine. And then there's the faces, which are contained by the edges, and everything in the face is equal, right? So there's the equal, uh, the, the equal, the same in the edges, and the different in the vertices. And those are the three, three of the five forms that uh, we learned about in the sophist. Uh, that are key to knowledge. And so I see geometry, the science of connection, as being very much related to logic, uh, which is all about connections. Uh, and logic is, is connections, but it's the order of the connections. And the order, order uh, you know, as a translator, you know, the, the translation that I used for this dialogue, um, the translator made a note that order was very key and important to, to the Greek world. And so I think, you know, but I, I see logic as a really a function of order and order of connections. So that would be one, one thing that I would think about. Um, and then, you know, you, you asked, how do you imagine the square root of two? Well, I think actually the word imagine, I think is key there, you know, that, that the square root of two cannot be rendered in a mathematical you know, calculated uh, sense. You know, Darren mentioned the dangers of rendering everything as a calculation. Well, if you render everything as a calculation, then that leaves no space for the imagination. Um, and I think the imagination is absolutely key to our existence. Why would we want to live in an existence where everything can be rendered to an algorithm, right? And I think that's what a lot of uh, people pursuing artificial intelligence perhaps are looking for, that you could render everything as an algorithm. But why would we want to live in such a universe? Why would I want to be part of such a universe where everything could be turned into an algorithm? Right? I don't want that. I want to be able to use my imagination to have some agency in my life. And you know, I think that you know, I was just I was just thinking as you as you asked that question, Jose. You know, that you can look at a square and you can see the diagonal, and you can imagine what that what that uh, what that square root of two is, even though you can't render it as a mathematical calculation. The one thing I would you know invite people to think of with the square root of two is look at the look at the continuing fraction expression of the square root of two. Right? The square root of two equals one plus one half and then you add one half to the denominator and then you add one half to the denominator again. So it's just this continuing fraction. Uh, and that that to me is coming through in those words in 260 uh 266b roughly where he uh where the visitor says talks about the diagonal one could say and then again the diagonal of the diagonal so you have this infinite regression of diagonals um and maybe that's where the imagination resides you know so uh i, I just see 
you know, I, I think people forget that Plato was a geometer. And I think people, I've heard this argument, I, I heard this argument brought up two weeks ago. Um, uh, somebody was saying that um, because the ancient Greeks couldn't deal with incommensables, therefore uh, Plato was, an, uh, and since Plato was an ancient Greek, therefore Plato couldn't deal with inc incommensurables. But we don't know that. We don't know what uh, the uh, what the um, curriculum at the academy was. We don't know what the curriculum at Aristotle's Lyceum was. We we don't know these things, so we we might assume that his knowledge was as limited as the rest of what was published in in Greek records at the time. But we don't know that. Uh, so I think maybe it's a question of imagination. Um, so I'll put those thoughts out there, but anybody else who wants to comment on this geometry, because it just keeps coming up, you know, in, in the dialogues, like in the Theotetus, for example, again, at the beginning, he has Theodorus and, uh, and he, or he mentions the spiral of Theodorus. And he says, he says this very cryptic thing, you know, and he ended at the square root of 16 for some reason. And then he just drops the theme and he goes on. Right. But is there a dramatic purpose to putting these in? And is there something that he wants to connect to knowledge, but in a way without telling us so that he leaves us free as free agents to, uh, to think about these things on our own without him telling us, without him using, using the, the, the force of his being a famed philosopher that, that we will necessarily want to think what he wants us to think, you know, so. On the topic of imagination, James, yeah. I mean, I remember once reading that our rationality is not as important as our imagination. In fact, um, the animals don't have imagination. So if humans were not on this earth, the earth a thousand years ago would look like the earth today because nothing would change. Uh, the imagination is the ability to, to question what is and say, well, what if? I can imagine a different reality. And that's what has propelled innovation or invention or whatever. It's just that imagination. And it is also that imagination which um, allows us to plan. Because if you cannot imagine what it is not today, then how can you plan for it? And that's the other distinction between animals and, uh, and, and humans. We plan. Uh, the animals, by instinct, they collect food for the winter by instinct, but nothing changes. So imagination, I, I wish I remember where I read that imagination is the power in rationality, not the reasoning in itself. Anyway. Yeah, I shut up. I, I, I love the way you said that. I mean, it's just it, it very powerful. The imagination... I think, as you said, it is, is the question, what is to determine what if, um, so that we're not always stuck in the what is, uh, that we're allowed to think of differences. And, you know, again, thinking back to the sophist where the different is the form that pervades all other forms. Uh, and it's the different that allows us to exercise the imagination, right? Because we're not always stuck in what is. Uh, and it allows us to get to the what if. Um, so that was very powerful. I just, you know, with respect to animals, I would just point out, uh, and I've got it in the uh, in the reading from it's around two sixty three uh, D to E. Um, and again, this is this is where the visitor is talking about the Greeks as uh, you know as a as a separate race. You know, so so those who think the Greeks are somehow cut off as a separate race from the rest of the races. 
And he says the races are unlimited in number, by the way, which is a very interesting reference too, because we don't tend to think today that races are unlimited. We think that there's, you know, X number of races on the planet. You know, you're a member of this race. I'm a member of that race. You know, it, it's, we think that there's these solid divisions between the races, even though we're discovering with DNA tests that we all have different genetic, like the, the genetics are all mixed up together. Nobody has pure genetics relating to one race. So I think maybe modern science is telling us that it is in fact true that the races are unlimited, but I just wanted to call this part um, at the end of that section where the visitor says, and to me, you appear to think that in taking away a part, you were left behind the rest as in its turn, a single class consisting of all of them because you had the same name animals to apply to them all. Uh, young Socrates says, this too was, as you say, and then the visitor replies, and yet my courageous friend, maybe if by chance there is some other animal, which is rational, as for example, the crane seems to be, so he's giving the crane, the bird, not the, not the mechanical device, the bird, he's giving the bird rationality, um, or some other such creature, and which perhaps distributes names on the same principles as you, it might oppose cranes as one class to all other living creatures and give itself airs taking all the rest together with human beings and putting them into the same category, which it would call by no other name except perhaps animals. So let's try to be very wary of everything of this sort. Um, a very powerful you know, reminder that the names that we use for things can have very serious consequences, especially if we think that we are somehow separate from that name that we're using. Um, so... Thank you for thank you for raising that. I, very very well said. I, I, I couldn't have put it better. Um, we'll go to uh, we'll, we'll we'll take Marmar first because you haven't spoken, and we'll go to Darren. So Marmar. Um, yeah, I hope this is not repetitive about the point that you were making um, that Plato does not tell us uh, what to conclude, and um, uh, what I think of it is. Um, I always thought that the the dialogues show uh, the process of the dialectic. So, for instance, like in the Republic, we get to see different views on justice. We get to see what Polymarchus thinks, and it could um, it could represent what someone like Polymarchus thinks, and then we get other views on justice. and And I think what Plato tries to do is um, show us um, different views. And then because he's a true philosopher, like you said before, he cannot tell us, you have to think this. He just shows us um, all the reasoning and then tells us, you can now come up with your own inference or conclusion. And I think part of the reason also is that um, the value of self-knowledge that uh, Socrates speaks of, self-knowledge is a form of also self-mastery. So in that sense, it's you applying your own reason to things. You trying to seek the truth on your own and trying to apply your reasoning to, to see the truth. So it would be, um, it would be like, Maybe, I don't know how to put it, but maybe like sophistry when they just tell you that this is what you should believe and this is what's right and this is what's a fact when, when it could be an opinion. And the other point I wanted to make about uh, liberty was that, um, uh, so f- 
we, we see uh, when he discusses in the Republic, um, and I'm sorry if this is out of context, but I just thought of it. Um, we see that he discusses um, the forms of regimes. So the oligarchic um, soul will you know, manifest in this way. And then the democratic uh, citizen or, or soul, because it has that liberty, it could follow desires in an arbiter, arbitrary manner. And um, the f just following desires and having appetite um, supersede reason um, is, the, is, is um, showing that this situation is devoid of virtue. Uh, so I just wanted to add those two points. Thank you. Those are great points, and thank you. Uh, you know, uh, you know. Again, the I think it is very relevant to bring in that discussion of the soul and the three parts of the soul from the Republic. You know, and the the, the tension between the desires and reason and the spirit. You know, so the you know how do we how do we govern those desires and use actually really interesting terms, self knowledge, uh, and that. Really, I think maybe uh, again is uh, a part of what Plato is trying to do in not telling us things, so that we can exercise that we can exercise that power of of self knowledge. And it's like, it's like maybe like a bit of muscle memory. If we don't exercise it, we lose it, right? And we start relying on others. And maybe that's what is happening a lot in the world today: is that we rely on what others are saying and what their opinions are. And we're forgetting how to create that divided line that, uh, that Socrates talks about in the Republic, you know, and that the divided line helps us to distinguish between knowledge, which is fact and opinion, right. And, and then belief, which is even more further, uh, further off base than opinion, but at least opinion has some basis, you know, uh, some rational basis. Um, and so it's understanding how to how to exercise that rationality. So I think that was very important, and that that actually relates very much to 260e of today's reading, in which um, he says uh, the the visitor says, "Should we divide these things this way, locating the class of kings as belonging to the self-directing sort of expertise?" Um, so if you're self-directing, then surely you must have self-knowledge. Uh, I would think, right? So, and then that's, that's I think, one of the reasons why the visitor takes us on this lengthy digression in time to the beginning of the universe. How does that self-directing knowledge arise if we don't understand how the universe came to be? Like, does self-directing knowledge just simply come out of thin air? Uh, or does it come from somewhere? Was it built into the very nature of the universe? Which is a very empowering thought. And I think Plato wants to take us there. He took us there in the Timaeus, and he's taking us here in this so-called myth today. And, you know, he, he refers to it as a story, th this myth of the creation of the universe. He, he's very careful not to say that it's his idea about the creation of the universe, but he's saying, this is a story we've heard. Well, you know, again, he's, he's not telling us, but he's, he's bringing us, at least allowing us to use the imagination. So... So thank you very much for those for those points. I think very helpful to to tie into into today's reading. Um, so we'll go to Darren and uh, Eva, and then Jose G. Darren. So we provoke their thoughts. I don't even know what to respond to. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so um, I guess I'll just go back to. So this is the thing I originally wanted to say, but there were so many interesting interesting things that uh, Marmer said, and uh, sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, and uh, other people. 
Um, okay. <laughs> uh, so um, regarding, uh, so I, I just want to go back. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. <clears throat> One second. Okay. I think I'm good. Um, so this passage that James read about how um, animals, um, possibility of uh, an animal being rational and how like Plato like what stops the um, young Socrates in his tracks and be like, you can't be so quick to be like, to take this prejudice that, you know, we're the only rational creatures. Maybe there are other rational creatures. Like who knows? The crane seems pretty rational to me. <laughs> and maybe there's other ones, right? And so we can't make a division like with our prejudices about, oh, it's humans versus animals or it's Greeks versus barbarians. Like you gotta like, you gotta be more sensitive than that. Um, you gotta pay more attention. And I find this like really great. Like I like how the philosophy, or at least there's something in the method he's showing us that, um, and how do you, and he's trying to show us how to use it properly, right? And it's not to like reaffirm our prejudices, it's to, in a way like um like to well obviously to think more clearly about what actually is in the world instead of just reaffirming our prejudices but it he, he's plato is very open to i find like surprising possibilities and this is just a little bit of a personal note of how i read plato like this is not something this is not like you know, something people say, like what Platonism represents or whatever. But like, I, I mean, I love Plato's dialogues. And to me, like, this is a personal thing. Like what they kind of represent to me is an opening up of possibilities. And that sounds kind of weird for, because <laughs> some people think Plato is like all about the forms or whatever. But like, I don't know, like when I read Plato, when I read, like, I'm just, I'm just reading Plato and seeing what, you know, the dialogues are, where they're going. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I read them with trying to affirm any doctrine or whatever. I just find it, like I fell in love with Plato because like I just I just began reading the dialogues. I was actually I had to teach teach Plato actually for the first time, and I was just reading the dialogues, and I was like, "Wow, these these dialogues are so refreshing. They're amazing." And and I find they open up, um, like just new ways of thinking about things. So like this is just uh, I'll just quickly mention this example. Um, so it, regarding all the dialogues and the virtues. Like I find they they're trying to show that each of the virtues can manifest in surprising ways that are that are atypical. Um, anyways, I, I I actually I don't even want to go down this route because it, it's detracting from this particular dialogue. But that's I'll just uh, I, I just want to say that like this this example of like the crane and also what we mentioned before about like Plato's universalism um, <clears throat> um, regarding you know Greeks versus barbarians and questioning that and questioning and in other dialogues questioning you know the distinctions and the elevation of you know greek human beings over other human beings like i find this very um yeah i find i find i find um yeah the the, the, the spaces he opens up for our imagination and thinking <laughs> coming back to that uh issue um and i quickly make this uh, this other point i wanted to this is something i just thought of when uh in response to what james said earlier about um or what we i guess we were talking earlier about calculation and um things that are incommensurable and um like different logics and and I, I was talking about how like virtue seems to be something that's different and uncanny although plato doesn't really want to spell it out <laughs> and just like and, and just tell us what it is it's something that's like beyond just sort of ordinary means and thinking. I think this comes up very clearly in the hippies minor um, on lying. Um, but 
I, I think this is something that James read before, but uh, there's a myth in the Carmides, which I think illustrates his point so well and just so evocatively, where he describes this future where uh, we've perfected all the art and he describes this, um, he paints this picture for us about, oh, how all the sciences, we've perfected them. Um, and, um, but how, um, so after he's finished the description, he, then Socrates says in the karma, well, it still seems like something's wrong here. Like, but I can't figure out what it is. Like, oh, I, I think he, he calls it a dream he's had actually. Yeah. So that makes it even more eerie. <laughs> so he had this dream where we perfected all the sciences and yet like, he just had this feeling that like something was still wrong, but he couldn't figure out what it is. Like, although we figured out all the scientists, how to do things, you know, how to build shoes and clothes and, but like, um, is this still, is this a good world? Like, is this like, is this some, it still seems feels like something like is wrong with it. And that's like such an evocative, like dream and picture of how, um, yeah, of how like the, the good, although we might figure out all like the technical means and all that's very important, but like, there's still a different kind of thing that's really important to human beings. Like this thing, like, like obviously he's, he's always trying to point towards like justice or virtue or something like that. But, um, and how, yeah. And how that's, um, how, you know, by pressing the point with this dream he depicts, you know, really shows how, yeah, that it is something different and, but so important. Um, so yeah, anyway, I just wanted to bring that up. I think James had looked at it before, but yeah, I just, I, like the, our discussion just sort of raised that. I haven't even thought about that in a long time, but it just raised mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, that um, section. Well, thank you, Darren. And, and, you know, we did cover actually Carmody's in, in the first season and what you just said actually makes me want to go back and re- re-listen to that recording that we did. Uh, because it, I really, you know, at the, at the time, I thought it really was a dialogue for our time. Uh, you know, this this kind of dream that we could perfect everything and then what? Um, you know, and and so you know, that's certainly where I think our technology is is heading. You know, where we could per- perfect everything in the physical universe, but that doesn't mean in the metaphysical universe that that there's going to be perfection. There, there'll never be perfection there. Because as you said, you know, it's 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 possibility that we're dealing with in the in the universe is infinite possibilities, infinite probabilities. I think we know that maybe now from quantum mechanics, you know, that there is no limit, no known limit to the probabilities or possibilities in the in the universe. And if that's the case, then that's great because that's where our imagination resides. And that's our agency is to use that imagination or not to use it, but that's our choice. Um, and I think the Carmody's really, you know, asks us to think about that, you know, because I think not, not only, not only does, is our civilization at that point where maybe we need to consider that, but I think there were past civilizations, you know, there's great technology in past civilizations. And he makes the point in the Critias that there have been, uh, planet destroying events in the past. And we know certainly, you know, that, that, uh, asteroid that hit, hit near, um, um, Chicxulub, I think it was, destroyed the entire planet, wiped off almost all of the life on the planet. So the, there are these things that come and wipe out knowledge from time to time, which he says in the Critias. And, and, you know, so, you know, as we reach this state of perfection of physical knowledge, um, you know, are we at risk of wiping out um, the imagination at the same time? Um, so I thought that was a really, uh, really helpful way of, of bringing that into the discussion. So thank you very much for that. Um, 
we'll go to Eva and then Jose G. And then thank Jake. you. Jose yeah. Yeah, thank you for uh, great perspectives. I, I would like to state a couple of things that I have a memory. I think uh, it's kind of like a fun memory about uh, that. So I, I, I hear Plato speaking, maybe even investing in the potential. So if he was not talking to the potential in us or in him or in potential in the people around him, I don't think we would be talking about him because he, he would be stating like close-ended conversations, but he, he was able to leave us uh, with open-ended conversations and open-ended questions. And I can see why he did that because this is this brings us to the reasoning in between the equality, imagination, and uh, the perfection. I believe universe is not perfect yet. I mean, it's not completed. Nothing is completed. So it's still moving. And because like we are in our minds, we are trying to see things, rational, rationalize things. And uh, we want to know things more with our knowledge or brain. And uh, maybe we are not investing enough in the invisible part of our own being or the universe. Uh, so that brings us to the question like, where is my part? I want the equal one. But like, we are all different in a way. So it's just like dividing a square into all the equal parts, but are they really equal? Or just like, do we really need to have the equal or is it is fair, negotiable? Or what are the needs? when there is equality and what is the if nothing is finished how can we say it's equal so that brings me to my memory with my grandma one early morning at the beach we were walking and my grandma has great greek roots i think i was trying to impress her as a teenager so we are walking uh, at this beautiful beach and I asked her where is the center of the earth oh she she was so she was so excited she started uh, trying to find the places like giving the name of the countries or uh, like using architecture like where, where can it be like it was a long discussion and I think I enjoyed her uh, because she would start walking even faster. She had that, uh, you know, the tough cookie kind of like personality. And in the end, when I told her that uh, the center of the earth is where I am standing now, she was so angry and she was so upset with me. <laughs> she, she left, she was trying to leave me in the beach and just leave me and just like go there. <laughs> and I, like, the reason she was upset with me, she was speaking so uh, some 
some nice and cute languages that a teenager would <laughs> uh, enjoy at that age. And she was just saying, how come you are just like ending the conversation, this question with this? We, and she had an idea like, of course, everyone is the center of the earth. So how can you limit this question with this kind of uh, close-ended thinking? And she said like, I even remember her, like she said, this each with each step, she would just say, this is the center of the earth and another step. And now this is the center of the earth. She would just like teach me like, uh, Wherever you go, wherever I go, it's my center of my world. So, uh, well, I don't, I don't think I appreciated that lesson at that time. But uh, now it makes sense that we are maybe losing that being the center of the earth and being important and being part of a huge big system maybe we lost our patient at this time of the century and we want to just make sure no i don't think we want equal i think i think more people want more than equal that's why there is the equal thing people who i don't think everyone who wants equal will be settled with equal if it equal was possible it's not possible in a way but there's still that feeling of what can I get more so yeah I should I should stop talking now <laughs> thank you I mean no don't stop talking I mean that was that was incredible actually I mean, some of the things yeah I'm going to re-listen to that part in particular of, of today's recording because you know you you asked three or four just really uh, profound questions, and particularly focusing on the equal, you know, uh, are the parts of the square equal, you asked, and, and let's think about that diagonal again, you know, the diagonal is incommensurable, and if that diagonal is sitting there in the middle of the square, then can you ever have the equal, right, and the equal is something that comes up in a number of dialogues uh, that, that Plato writes, and so I think that's very much worth thinking about, a very profound question, and that analogy of you know, where is the center of the earth? And, and your answer, the center is where I'm standing now. Um, you know, that's actually a bit of, I, I'm, it makes me think of Einstein's general relativity in a way, and that we each have our own frames of reference. Uh, there isn't an absolute frame of reference. I, I think that's, that's a very key part to understanding relativity, certainly with respect to the physical universe. And then you, you know, you, you started by saying, you know, that, that, um, you know that you started talking about the potential and when there's no limit to the potential i think that's that's very important to understand that we're part of that and then you said that we need to invest in the invisible you know because yeah, i think we 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 we're so good at seeing with the five or perceiving with the five senses that we sometimes think that that's all there there is but we do need to invest in that invisible which is the part of the universe that we can't see which is what's in our very own minds we can't see inside our minds there's nothing visible to see inside there. It's all the imagination, um, you know, and that, uh, I think that's so absolutely key. You know, it, it makes me think of, uh, you know, one of the, the my favorite modern philosophers, Rebecca Goldstein, um, 
she she has this she said this one beautiful thing that I just always remember that we are beings of matter who long to matter so we're beings of physical matter and we long to matter in a way that's not physical uh, and that that just to me is so powerful like it, it means that we've got a foot in two different realms we've got a foot in the in the physical realm which is limited and we've got another foot in the invisible realm which is that realm of potential that you talked about so well, I could go on endlessly about what you just said. So thank you very much. Um, and, and, you know, I think we can certainly come back to that and get others' views on it as well. So I appreciate that. So we'll go to Jose G and then Jose J. Um, I wanted to make uh, three points. and But the first one is a kind of a light point. I was thinking uh, what Eva was saying. It reminded me when I, in similar situations with a very different outcome, I was going to uh, the park with my aunt. I was probably eight years old. And we we're chatting about um, uh, whatever, right? And I asked her the question, what, what is the, the belly button for? I know what eyes are for, what the arms are for, the, the ears. But what are the belly buttons for? And she was horrified. And she sent me to confession. Because we were we were Catholics, right? So anyway, that's not uh, was not as insightful as what uh, Eva described with her grandma, but uh, made me think of those conversations that sometimes fire in the wrong direction. Anyway, the the the, the points I wanted to make is the first one is I always wonder as, as well about the Plato style, but my conclusion was that that basically Plato wanted us to focus on the form, not on the outcome. And therefore, um, that it doesn't matter if I doesn't get to the point where he tells you, look, this is the end result, the conclusion, and this is what you should believe. He wanted us to focus on the process, what I call the form, and to pick it up from there and do, a, uh, do with it as you see fit. Second point I wanted to, to make is, which very interesting what Marmar said about liberty devoid of virtue. Now, let me put us a premise there. The other one, I don't know who brought up the divided line that I had forgotten about, I think you, James, as, as a separator between fact and opinion or fiction. I need to reread that part because I, I forgot about that. And then critical thinking. I, I mean, Jose, Jacob, and I are investing time in critical thinking, and I wonder if, in fact, that divided line separates what we call the virtuous critical thinking versus the non-virtuous critical thinker, because you can be a good critical thinker, but you may have low morals or high morals, low value or high values. And in one case, you will use it as a, an, an instrument of persuasion and deceit. And on the other side, on the high value critical thinker, you will use it as an element, as a tool to find the truth. Anyway, a connection I made to the point I wanted to make. The third one was about Robert Kennedy and values. Uh, and when you mentioned the invisible, um, actually, the um, what he was talking about, pretty much like his, uh, like what Donald Trump does. I'm kidding about that one. Uh, when talking about opposites, there's no no doubt in my mind what opposites mean between Kennedy and Trump, but. The, what, what Kennedy was talking about is that, that part that is the guiding force 
on everything, which is your values. And to me, they are not, values tend to be a finite, absolute thing. And whatever is not finance, finite, absolute, or true, or the truth, are not values, are just accommodations that we make independently because of how we grew up, what they told us about it. And here comes the question, right? The um, when you and the connection with critical thinking. I mean, the difference between thinking about the means to an end and thinking about the end. Uh, and uh, as Marcuse, I think he was, Jose Jacob, correct me, but Marcuse talk about the instrumental thinking, which is basically a, a reasoning, which is reasoning about what are the best means to reach an end, and the value reasoning which is, is that end the end you want? And that cannot be answered by uh, a weak critical thinker. It has to be answered by a virtues-filled critical thinker. So that's it. I, just, I saw an interesting connection there, and I think I need to reread the divided line because there's something there about what the role is of critical thinker in a, in a virtuous sense in this world today. That's all. It, and it definitely, you've given cause for me to rethink too a number of things that uh, I did actually go back and look at the divided line again last week. And, and in it, I found actually a discussion of the mean. Um, and, you know, this is something that will come up in two weeks when we talk about the next section of the statesman um, that the Statesman role is to find the mean of the extremes and the divided line actually uh, Socrates talks about taking an unequal division and then finding the mean of that and continuing to divide to divide according to that mean. Uh, and I think that's very critical actually the, the mean is something that's very important and it's a geometric concept again the mean. Uh, and it's also a mathematical concept. Uh, and because geometry and math combine in a three-dimensional complex plane, which was, uh, you know, complex uh, geometry was, I think, uh, you know, sort of the mid-1800s is when that, that started to really be developed. And so we know that's the case now. So there is a combination of, uh, of mathematics and, and geometry in a, in a three-dimensional complex plane. And so the mean features very critically in all of that. And that's, uh, that's, a, that's something that I certainly focus on uh, in the context of the book that I'm writing on uh, Luca Pacioli, who was an expert on the mean and the extreme, which is the golden ratio. Um, so that is a very much a feature of the, um, of the divided line. Uh, I love the way you talked about, you know, Plato wants us to focus on the form, not the outcome. Uh, I think that's very, I mean, to me, that's, that's what I really enjoy about Plato is he's not telling us what the end is. He's telling us how to get to an end, which is maybe undeterminable, um, but at least it, it, it's setting us on the path. And, and I think that the path is very, um, is something that we're meant to perhaps understand uh, in that story of the creation of the universe. And maybe I'll put that on the screen in a, in a minute or two. Is that story of the creation of the universe is is understanding the the path from the past to the present, you know, and that kind of temporal relationship that I talked about in the Kennedy speech, uh, particularly because in that story he says that that it was the the God's role to guide, not to not to you know to cause, not to determine 
an end, but to guide. Uh, and I think that's that's critical. So we will maybe just talk about that as we wind up today's session, which we've got another 20 or 25 minutes left. Uh, so we can talk about that. Um, and then, you know, certainly you talked about values versus accommodation, which I, I think is it's a great discussion. We'll see, you know, the, the talk about values and virtues and, and virtuous thinking uh, definitely will come up in, in our next two sessions on the on the statesman. So very good um, to tie in all of those concepts. That was great. Thank you. I, I will definitely re-listen to that part too of the, of the podcast recording. Um, so we'll go to Jose J. Okay, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, about the murmur question about the where can she read about uh, this instrumental reasoning and value reasoning? Uh, well, at least to me, the first time that I that I read about this concept is uh, is when I started reading about critical theory, and uh, there is a an initially in a book called the, the the dialectic of enlightenment for from Max Horkheimer and uh, Theodor Adorno. They start explaining this concept. This is a big thing, so we cannot talk, like, uh, maybe we can have another conversation some other time. Uh, anyway, second uh, second thing that I wanted to say is that uh, we are talking about how to reach uh, as Plato doesn't reach to conclusions and uh, just guide it. My idea is that uh, he thinks that the, like the forms are the, are the absolute truth of things. He's not a relativist. He's a, he thinks that the truth, the truth are, are there. But the problem is how to get there. <laughs> and uh, and uh, probably we can never we can never know exactly, for example, like, like uh, what is the exact definition of justice? What is the definition, definition of like courage or any virtues or any values? So the most that we can do is by reasoning, by dialectical. Dialectic, we can we can be close to that, and probably the only one that can get there probably is the like the philosopher king, and uh, so in the in, in couple of ways in the Republic, he mentioned the allegory of the cave, how you go from being chained there, like the, the lowest level of <laughs> of thinking and everything, and you go up, and you see the sun, and you see the the form of the good and etc. But this is, this is a long journey. It takes like probably your whole life to get there. Anyway, uh, another question. This is not like a, a question that they have. Uh, reading this dialogue, when I read the, this uh, at the end of the, this part, the Kronos and the Zeus uh, history, what I thought is that uh, like uh, initially there was a time of Kronos and he mentioned the how was the, the man in these in this, uh, this times that uh, he was born from Earth and come from Earth, come from Earth and go back to Earth. He was in reproduction of, uh, of people, etc., etc. And, uh, and after that, it was a reverse uh, rotation of things, something, and, and we come to the time of Zeus. And what I interpret at that time, uh, when, when I was reading, is that uh, well, in the old days, it was like that, the time of maybe when we have the Eden times, in biblical times, uh, you know, the, everything was perfect. You can talk to animals and and they, everybody live, uh, used to live happily and ever, and peace and everything. And after that, something happened, probably, I don't know, the original sin, 
the, 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 the original scene and Zeus came, Zeus came and the, the whole thing was screwed up <laughs> and wars and et cetera, et cetera. And that this process is cyclical kind of this is what I understood. But now I am confused in the sense that you remember, this is my question, you know, in the Republic, this myth that, uh, that the men are bought with uh, like iron, how was gold and silver, and they were born from the earth. So he's talking there, like this thing happened in the actual times. And, and I thought that he mentioned that Kronos was the old times and Zeus time was the right, the, the actual times. I don't know, maybe somebody can clarify that because I am, I am kind of uh, very confused on that. Okay, thank you. Thank you, and that, that actually, that question is actually a perfect segue to kind of the last part of today's reading that I wanted to share. So I'll put that on the screen. Um, and then, yeah, I just so I wanted to comment on um, some of the things I think really good, you know, that, that you know, the, the most we can do with the forms is to reason with them. Um, because there is, you know, well, well, the forms are, you know, the be all and the end all, maybe the problem with the form is that they, the forms, they never reach one single point because they always combine. And that's what we learned from the sophist is that the forms are always combining. And because the different pervades all of the forms, the forms never reach a single common point. The common point is always elusive. It's going around and around and the word circle keeps appearing and the circle is that which has no beginning and no end. And in fact, they use the, the word circle again in this end part. Uh, and, and certainly in Timaeus, um, section 37, I think of the Timaeus, uh, I've actually got it as a footnote in my, in my <coughs> notes. Um, but yeah, Timaeus 37D, now it was a living thing's nature to be eternal, but it isn't possible to bestow eternity fully upon anything that is begotten. And so he began to think of making a moving image of eternity. At the same time as he brought order to the universe, he would make an eternal image moving according to number of eternity remaining in unity. This number, of course, is what we now call time. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's of course, but you know that's the, the word that was used and perhaps a little platonic uh, clue there. Uh, but it, you know, makes me think, you know, of, of you know both of the allegory of the cave that you spoke about, and this moving image of eternity. Both make me think of holographs, which are very much uh, present in in our world today. We know how to make holographs, and we're making pretty good ones. In fact, there uh, I might even use it to start the next session. Is uh, just you know there is again a very successful deep fake image made um, that is confusing people. And, and so I might use this particular example, it was in the news in a, a week or two ago. Um, so if we are confronted, if we are living in some sort of holographic existence, you know, that allegory of the cave is a perfect allegory for being in a holograph. You know, do you believe what you see projected on that wall by the men standing on the parapet behind you who you don't know are there, but they're using torches to shine these, these images. Torches cast light, of course, which is, fundamental to the electromagnetic wave. So, you know, just maybe that ancient, that ancient uh, allegory from 2,400 years ago is, uh, is actually has some relevance to today. Uh, but certainly, um, you know, this, this, this need to reason, uh, I think is, is so critical that, and, and that the forms never reach some sort of absolute conclusion of themselves. They, they leave 
space open. They, they leave at least two degrees of freedom so that we're always, we're never bound to one particular conclusion. Nobody can point to one particular thing and say that is the reason for the universe. Reason yes, and the, and the mission is, of is the, yeah. so the, the, the way the philosopher is to spend like, your life looking for the wisdom and look for the, for the truth that, that probably is, is like a, asymptotic. You, you will never reach there. Yeah. You know, yeah. you, can, you can grasp but the more that you learn, the more that you 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 go up in the cave, let's say, in the, outside and the the divine line, the more the closer that you are. But uh, that uh, this is a mission, and probably Plato, the, the way that uh, he teaches is how to to get up in the from the from the cave from the chains to to see the the form of the good. So after that, what do you see? Well, you you will never see the. The, the, the 100% reality, but you were really close. Yeah. Well, well said. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the form of the good was defined uh, in the Republic is that which gives, gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. And it doesn't get much better than that, I think. So, uh, but yeah, we are, we are beings of matter. And so we're in the state of becoming and we're never able to reach that eternal state of being because that that's simply not, Part of what our bodies are in, uh, but we can come close to it, and and I think you said that very well. So that's that's great, and that that, that analogy I think is really important, and especially important to understand in the role of the statesman. You know, the statesman is not the man on the parapet with the torch, shining images on the wall, forcing us to think that those images are true. The statesman is the one who presents the arc of history, as Robert Kennedy did, and you know places us in time and space in a way that we understand the context and we understand the probabilities. And, and as Eva said, we understand that questions are still open, right? So the it's not that it's a closed question. You must do things this way, which is what the tyrant says. Uh, it, it's to leave those questions open. So I think that's, that's so key, uh, especially with the technology that we have now. So thanks for that. And we'll go to Darren. Okay, so I'm going to try to tie a lot of uh, thoughts I'm having right now uh, together, and it might not be successful, but I'm going to give this a shot. Um, so it's uh, tying together a lot of the uh, conversation that, or, or the ideas like that have um, that people brought up about um, uh, knowledge and um, and the forms and how they relate. Um, so this is something I just thought of. So I'm just trying to put this together in my head. But um, so one of the things I found really interesting, because there's this tension, right, between our need to be open to new possibilities, but also um, how, like what Plato's understanding of the forms is. And if they're eternal and unchanging, then how does that relate to our need to be open and um, and how we know the world. Um, so I just want to bring this part uh, in from the dialogue today. Um, so this is at two seven seven D. We might, I mean, we might come back to this again um, because um, I don't know what's coming up. But <laughs> but I, I just found this section to be so uh, interesting because it's it's a depiction of um, well, it's supposed to be. Um, a description of the method of using models. So he's he's introducing the method of using models here or examples. 
another translation says. Um, and um, but he 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 frames it as um, something about he says here our relation to knowledge. So he says at uh, 277D, um, I do seem rather oddly now to have stirred up the subject of what happens to us in relation to knowledge. Um, and then he says, just further down, it has turned out, my dear fellow, that the idea of a model itself in its turn also has need of a model to demonstrate it. And so I think it's quite significant that he says that this is our relation to knowledge. Um, and I'll just read one more. There's so many interesting things, this stretch of uh, dialogue, but I'll just read one more. I'll just be selected and read one more thing. Uh, so this is at um, uh, 278D. Uh, I just want to read the, another translation I was using, the one I mentioned in the uh, comments before. The Fowler from the Perseus online. So, um, sorry, I have to find it again. <laughs> okay, here we go. So, uh, can we wonder then, so again, this is about our relation to knowledge. Can we wonder then that our soul, whose nature involves it in the same uncertainty about the letters or elements of all things, is sometimes, in some cases, firmly grounded in the truth about every detail, and again, in other cases, is all at sea about everything, and somehow or other has correct opinions about some combinations, and then again is ignorant of the same things when they are transferred to the long and difficult syllables of life. So like there's this idea of, so he has, he, he's saying that, so he actually starts out the section saying how the method of models is, um, is a really, like he says, it's the, it's the essential method. It's like really important to helping us understand more complicated uh, things. Uh, and he says it's the easy. Oh wait, yeah. He says it's the easiest and best way of leading people on to the things they're not yet recognizing. Just leading them on to the things they're not yet recognizing. Um, uh, and he says it is difficult, my dear fellow, to set forth any of the greater ideas except by the use of models. Um, so, like this is. It turns out I don't think I've, I don't know if I've encountered this before. I might have just forgotten or just overlooked it. But um, this idea of using models. And so, so th these are the ideas I'm trying to put together. <laughs> uh, so there's this, so the, the image of knowledge itself, I find really fascinating because it's, it's not, it's not like this strict ladder we climb where we're certain to have, get to the point where this is definitely something we can grab. Like, this is the truth. Like, but it's like a layering of models and models and the model might not fit perfectly. And we have, we need another model. And then. <laughs> Um, but that, and we're and we're layering models upon models apparently. Um, so it it's it's this picture of knowledge that's much more contingent. There's this great metaphor in the epistemology. I forget who who posed it, but it's like this uh it's supposed to be like a quinine metaphor of our knowledge is basically like a raft in the sea, and you can't just sort of like you can't build things from ground up. It's not like a pyramid where you have stable ground and you can just build everything from the ground up and you'll find the truth. It's more like we're sort of like drifting on a raft at sea. So you have to replace like bits and pieces of the time. You can't build everything from the ground up with like salt. There's no solid ground. And so like this is a picture I'm seeing, which is kind of surprising. Like uh, I don't know if I've seen it in Plato before, this picture of knowledge that we're just sort of like um, we're, we're just sort of adrift in a way. And you can't and 
it's, it's more like a very contingent and free-floating view of what knowledge might be. It's not that there isn't truth though, right? It's just that um, it's just that our relation to knowledge is this use of like models upon models. And so, but I see a connection with the form still though, right? Because maybe, maybe what, like maybe the uh, tools we have, the original tools we have are kind of like forms, right? Like they're, they're, they're the principles or something in our mind, uh, maybe about logic or um, something about physics and the world. And, and they're very basic. Like they're the syllables he's talking about here. The, the, the simpler syllables as opposed to the long and difficult syllables of life, he says. And, and so he says we get easily confused uh, like we can, sometimes we can see the, like this, the little syllables clearly, but we get confused when they get transferred to, you know, the longer words and the longer syllables. And so, um, so maybe it's like the picture that's like, again, this is sort of my uh, attempt to connect these ideas here. So maybe the forms are somehow like the very simple syllables. And, um, but of course, in the world that we live in, they're, 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 they're put together just like syllables and words into like these very long, complicated <laughs> mixtures. And, um, and we don't see those clearly, but we can try to get to those truths with like, by using different models and, and, piece, and, and uh, testing different models. And uh, we might be able to grasp the truth, like become clearer about the more complicated combinations that way. So there is a sense then in which like, there is a metaphysics in which there is a kind of solidity. We might not like, I don't know like what way we grasp it, but like maybe like the forms are somehow like in the background um, and maybe Plato is hinting at that. And then, but the way they combine in our knowledge of the world becomes much more contingent because there's this like complicated, like this very sort of um, free floating method he's talking about. Um, that I, I don't know if I've encountered before. So it's very enlightening to see like Plato describe this, like, and, and I think it's quite significant. He says it's a relation to knowledge. So anyway, sorry, that's just my way, my, my present in very uh, chaotic attempt at connecting different ideas of like, like being open and needing imagination, but then also like, oh, but then there's the forums and there's a truth. And so anyway, that's just my, hopefully it was some, it made a little bit of sense. Um, so. Yeah, well, and, and thank you. I mean, you certainly picked up on some very key points at the end of this dialogue. And unfortunately, we've only got you know less than ten minutes left. But uh, and so maybe I'll try to I'll try to maybe take what you said and put it in the context of what they talk about uh, in the creation of the universe and this this kind of difficulty in translating what uh, what they're talking about in in terms of this retrograde period of the of the uh, uh, of the creation of the universe which is a very interesting thing um, that that translation difficulty in that uh, and you actually you know offline you raised the, the the question of translation and, and you know whether uh, you know this particular translation that I'm featuring is the best, or whether there's better translations. It's a very important thing in terms of knowledge itself is how we translate or transmit that knowledge, and 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 sorry, how the receivers trans translate the transmission. So you might intend to transmit knowledge in one way, I might receive that transmission in another way and and translate it differently. And so I think that's very key. But certainly, you know, highlighting knowledge. As you did, I mean, this this being the, the third of a trilogy, 
of dialogues all on the nature of knowledge, but looking at knowledge specifically from the perspective of the statesman or the leader, uh, you know, now we've seen knowledge from three different contexts, as I said in my introductory notes, from the context of the common person in the Theotetus, in the context of the teacher and the sophist, and now in the context of the statesman or the or the leader in, in the statesman. And, you know, the uh, you, you talked about, you know, the, the model, uh, and, and, you know, again, we, we think, uh, going back to the sophist and how there's the five forms that that relate to each other, uh, but they they never arrive at some sort of absolute conclusion. There's always this relationship capacity, and so I think that's the the need for a model. And to me, a model is a geometric thing. A model has connections, and it has an order in which the connections are made. And so the model is logic itself, I think. Um, and 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 logic requires connections and order. Uh, you know, that's the way I see it. And that's the way I see the forms uh, as as being the the connections and order by which the mind understands the way the eternal realm of being operates in this constantly changing state of becoming that our bodies are uh, occupy. Uh, you know, certainly when you use the word contingent, you know, it makes me think of the diagonal of, of the diagonals, the, the part that I mentioned earlier, that that particular piece of geometry at two sixty six b. Uh, and then I'll also highlight, because um, we didn't really get to discuss all of this part, I, I did talk about near the beginning, I did talk about 266C and that, you know, false distinction that was, was being made between the Greeks and everybody else. Like, you, you can't divide something that is unlimited in number by two. And that's a very important point, I think, that they were making, uh, that the visitor made at 266C to... 263e there's a part in that also i think that touches on what you just said uh which would be around 263a or so uh the visitor says whenever there is a class of something it is necessarily also a part of whatever thing it is called a class of but it is not at all necessarily that a part is but it is not at all necessary that a part is a class that's a very important point, I think, that he made. So while we try to classify things in our minds, things become complex. And so sometimes we think that a part is a class on its own, uh, but it's that complexity. And you, you talked about that complexity and the need for a model. Uh, and that's very much, I think, what, what uh, is being talked about in this part that I have here on the screen, this excerpt that starts at 268A to C, which talks about the necessity of going back to understanding how the universe evolved. Uh, you know, he says, um, how, will we, how will our account of the king appear to us right and complete when we posit him as sole herdsman and rearer of the human herd, singling him out on his own from among tens of thousands of others who dispute the title with him? Well, they conclude that's a bit of a problem. So, so then the visitor says, well, then we must travel some other route, starting from another point. By mixing in, as one might put it, an element of play, we must bring in a large part of a great story. And as for the rest, we must then, as in what went before, take away part from part in each case, so as to arrive at the first point of the object of our search. And that's this, uh, I think you were talking about the complexity uh, and the need to reduce complexity. And, and, and we do that with the use of models, because it's impossible in the mind to keep all of the connections of all time and all space together. And so we use models to, to convey that. And, and the models are a very effective means. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't require an algorithm 
for each and every part, you know, we just need to understand how the connections work and then we can make our way around anywhere we want once we understand how the connections work. So you don't need an, an algorithm or a code for every single one of the connections, which would be impossible, certainly impossible in the mind and certainly impossible for the mind to then set in an algorithm to be used in something that we call artificially intelligent, like a computer. It's impossible. So, but once you know, once you know, how the process works, uh, you know, as, as Jose, you know, was saying, you know, the, the, it's, it's all about the process um, that, you know, once we understand how the process works, then we're capable of, of really understanding how reality comes together. So, so thank you for that. Uh, and then, you know, it, it, I, I wanted to highlight, maybe we'll talk about this at the beginning of the next session, uh, the difference in understanding what, what the visitor is talking about in the construction of the universe. And there's a very important point uh, when he says that first it, it's first, this universe rotates one way. And then there's a period when it goes into retrograde. And then when it comes out of retrograde, it starts uh, rotating again on its own. And the translator in the particular version that I'm looking at uh, the one that we're using for this series there's a footnote 31 in that translation that I would really uh, highly recommend to anybody to look at footnote 31 in that translation, because there's two different ways. Uh, the translator is honest and said there's two different ways to understand what is meant by that period of retrograde and whether um, whether people are whether people were actually born of the earth, as, as Jose J asked. Um, you know, and, and he says, well, you know, at, at the beginning. At the beginning of time, we weren't born from each other. Uh, and it's actually something when I think about back to the very beginning of time, like we're all born of two parents, right? It requires two parents. You can't be born from one parent, but how was the very first person born? So I think maybe the visitor is trying to tell us that they were born of the earth. Um, so it may be potentially logical. So anyway, I will, I will um, kind of set that groundwork for us to start the next episode, but um, maybe we'll, we'll it maybe end today's episode with, with JK, your thoughts. Yeah. Can you associate the, um, the idea of the model with the, um, the ideal statesman who is, um, <clears throat> was able to navigate um, between the, um, between the, um, this, uh, you know, um, mathematical form or geometric form of what is, um, you know, what is the, um, what his, um, his role should be, and at the same time, <clears throat> be able to um, be flexible enough to, to uh, take into consideration the, the changing uh, flux and differences in the, in the world of, uh, of becoming. I, that's, how, that's how I understand what, you, what you're saying about what the model is. Um, mm -hmm. Is, that, is mm -hmm. that true? Because we're trying to get, understand what the statesman right. You know who is able, who is not a tyrant, but is a, mm -hmm. a true statement, a statesman. That's a great question, uh, and a great question. I think maybe to end today's episode on is is, and we will certainly we can take that up and get others' suggestions uh, at the beginning of the next episode. I certainly see, and and that's why I started today's episode with Kennedy's speech because I see in that speech, or I heard in that speech, the flexibility. You know, you, you use the word flexible. Um, to me, a model is something that's not rigid, especially if it's a model of parts that, uh, uh, that continuously combine, but the combinations are always in different ways and the different 
as we learned in the SOFIS, pervades all of it. So a model with the different pervading all of it is never going to be static. And we don't want to live in a universe that's static. We want to have that flexibility because with flexibility, we have agency. Um, and agency is what gives us power as beings of, of matter who long to matter. We, we couldn't matter. We, we were always of matter in the state of becoming, but we couldn't matter if we didn't have flexibility. There'd be no mattering. Um, so I think that's key. And I think in, in that statesmanlike speech of Kennedy's, uh, which I think is one of the best of, of the 20th century, I just, I, I, I weep when I, when I think of all of the opportunities that the current statesmen in the world have to bring us a little bit of philosophy in the midst of all of this apparent chaos that we see on the news headlines every day, why can't they just bring us a little bit of philosophy like Kennedy did and show us that flexibility and, and the ability um, to act when, when questions are not closed. You know, we're faced with so many closed questions these days. Eva, you know, again, you talked about the question being open. Why, why are we trying to close all of these questions? Um, so I think that, that flexibility, understanding how the model works, that the model is not something that's fixed and rigid, um, I think is, is the key to the statesman will help us to understand that and, and will lead us accordingly and not try to box us into one particular outcome or another, you know, as, as uh, I forgot who, who said earlier that, you know, Plato is not telling us about the outcomes. It's, it's how, how to guide ourselves on the path to, to what we think is a good outcome. Um, so I love that question, you know, I, and, and certainly let's, let's keep that in mind, but I, you know, if, if anybody else can bring any other examples of good statesman like speeches or writings, you know, I'd be happy to feature them at the beginning of the next episode. And we can maybe see that flexibility is a very important aspect of a statesman. So thank you for that. Um, it is unfortunately time to wrap up today's discussion. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been absolutely amazing. I mean, some of the ideas brought here, I think the ideas, you know, I think we've all had ideas generated in our minds that we didn't come to this meeting with. And I think that's very important that, that we all get something new out of it. And that's an example of how the imagination works. I think is that we, the imagination doesn't work on its own. We need at least one other person to exercise imagination with. And, uh, you know, I think that's the key for these meetings and, and, you know, why it is that we have speech and models and, and things that we operate by, you know, to, to, so that we can combine our, our energies and, and come up with some real synergy. And I, I think there's been this amazing synergy today that the, the outcome is much greater than the, than the inputs as a result. Uh, and I think that's how, how growth comes about, um, certainly in the, in the human imagination and capacity to work together. So some some great philosophy I think that we've developed here together today and so I want to thank everybody for being here and I just wanted to say that um, next uh, session we'll read to 294a of the Statesman so that's another roughly third of the dialogue um, and that's a I think that will very much build on the foundation that we've established today so to 294a uh, in two weeks and uh, so again, thank you for everybody for being here and those who would like to stay online for another half hour for casual, unrecorded discussion of Plato's Cafe. 
more than welcome to do so. And otherwise, I do hope to see you all in two weeks. Bye.